Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Fab Four Free For All. It's not the. It is the. Thank you. And welcome to another exciting edition of Fab Four Free For All without the the. the. And uh, I am today's moderator, Mitch Axelrod, and joining me are the usual cast of idiots as per Mad Magazine. <laughs> I'm Rob Leonard. And I'm Tony Trigordo. And today we have a very special guest on the phone. We have someone who has written a book, a very unique book, uh, which we will discuss. And the book is called Beatleness, How the Beatles and Their Fans remade the world and joining us on the phone is dr candy leonard welcome candy hi good morning good morning this is a very unique book because other than there was a book i believe in 76 or so um growing up with the beatles growing up with the beatles uh ron schaumberg schaumberg yeah who did a I don't want very to say, personal stories about his life and his love and how and they, how the Beatles the Be- connected with it. Right. And how he connected with them and the Beatles Correct. connected with him. And you've gone further with that. Your book is really the history of the Beatles, but as it intertwined with first generation fans. Correct. Right. I mean, I'm aware of the Schaumburg book. I mean, I remember reading it when it came out. And But yeah, my book is kind of almost a generational memoir in a sense. I mean, it has the perspective of fans of, well, all first generation, which for purposes of the book I define as born between 40, well, the fans I interviewed were born between 40, 1947 and 1961, and which of course is a very wide age range, which is what made it so fascinating to look at how fans of different ages responded to this nonstop deluge of, of stimuli that they put forth for six years, sounds, images, and ideas, and also how it varies by gender. So, like I say, it's kind of a generational memoir in a sense because it's voices of a lot of different, you know, a lot of fans, and also, of course, geographically diverse, you know, across the country. Yeah, now, Beatleness. In the beginning of the book, you do have sort of, you define Beatleness in three different ways, and I think all of us, whether we are first-generation or second or third or fourth, have Beatleness. So I want to hear out of your mouth, what do you think Beatleness is? I mean, and I want you to really sort of describe it as you've done in the book, because I think it's very poignant to what the discussion we're about to have. Well, I can read the definitions if you sure. want. Um, okay. Is this in the Webster Dictionary? <laughs> no. Uh, well, it's not in the dictionary yet. Maybe it will be. Ah, there you go. Things big, right? Toppermost of the toppermost. Okay. So <laughs> the, it's a noun, and the first definition is the qualities or characteristics of the Beatles and their work. A manifestation of the essential qualities that define the Beatles. So this would be, you know, the situation where you look at a, an early photo, let's say one of the Diesel Hoffman photos, and there is something about it that is so quintessential, so just essentially Beatles, that, that it, it's kind of hard, those qualities. I mean, we can break it down and talk about attitude, charisma, intelligence, good looks, uh, style. I mean, all those things. But it's cumbersome to talk about it that way. So we just call it their Beatleness, right? So certain, or of course, in certain moments in the music that just seem to be especially loaded with Beatleness. And everybody has their own particular moment like that. So for some people, it might be a particular harmony or a particular guitar riff, whatever. But these moments that just kind of, for a fan, are just pure Beatleness. So that's the first definition. The 
second definition is the emotional or spiritual state, condition, or feeling resulting from exposure to or thinking about the Beatles and their work. So it's how they make you feel. So I listen, like I'm going to Harris Fest this weekend, and so I've been listening to a lot of George, you know, George within Beatles, and it just, you know, it put me in a, I felt the Beatles. It was that joyful feeling. The word that comes up over and over again in interviewing fans, if I had to pick one word that I've heard the most, it's joy. Okay. And so Beatles is a particular kind of joy. Now, let me, I did tell you this offline, but in 2005, when I was at the Paul show in Madison Square Garden, and at the end of the show, he did Please Please Me, and I just started bawling like a baby. And mm-hmm. my wife turned to me and said, why are you crying? And I looked at her and I said, I don't know. And well, you were overcome with Beatles. That's exactly it. <laughs> and Paul Stanley actually of Kiss it in the Space Within Us DVD. You know, there's interviews with Paul Stanley and other, and he actually related that same story. And I, I was so glad yeah. that someone else did. Look, there's people crying all the time at Beatles show or at solo shows. And I always, I guess I was overcome with Beatles. Well, we met, Candy, we met a young lady when we went to a listening party for the new released mono LPs. And talk about flashing back to the very beginning of, you know, the Beatles story with that. And there was a girl behind us that couldn't have been more than 25 or 26 who was talking about crying at the Ringo shows. Right. Anytime Ringo went into a Beatles song, she -hmm. just would start the ball. And the nice thing is, even though the book, you're talking to first-generation fans, the nice thing is that idea of Beatles goes way beyond that first generation. first generation. Really transcends. Well, for people who are young, like this woman in her 20s that you're talking about, I mean, she, having grown up with them and being born into a culture that already loves and embraces them, for her to have seen a former Beatle singing a Beatles song would have been, I mean, it's understandable how that would be an emotional experience because you, you are close to something that is so big and phenomenal that it, it's emotionally overwhelming. I mean, that's part of I mean, I talked in the book about why the girl screamed, and I think there are a lot of reasons, but one of them is just the sheer joy, again, that word joy, of being in proximity, in a space where, where this amazing thing that's so big, bigger than you, you know, bigger yeah. than your family and your neighborhood, this global phenomenon, being up close to that is just overwhelming. And so, it's, yeah, it's very emotional. So the third definition, and this is one that, um, well, I'll just read. The cultural references and artifacts, this is beyond the music, obviously. Cultural references and artifacts, tangible and intangible, that evoke the Beatles. Artistic or commercial use of words and images associated with or evocative of the Beatles. Some of the examples I always use is, but there are so, you know, obviously headlines and newspapers and magazines, advertising. There's all these references to the Beatles that many people may not even realize are references to the Beatles, but those of us who are tuned in, you know, hear Beatles, hear and see Beatles references everywhere. But one example that I use a lot is, because it just struck me as it was funny. You know, when you go to the hardware store to have a key made, and there's all these different motifs on the keys, and one of them is a yellow submarine, right? So mm-hmm. that's needleness, or Lego beetle, right. or, you know, just things that the party store, you know, when you go to buy party goods, and there's all these different themes, and there's 60s-themed party goods, and they say, all you need is love, or give peace a chance. 
And then there, there are books and podcasts about the Beatles, too. So that has its own... Well, of course, right. <laughs> well, also right. When... These are, the third set is, are things that are sort of out of the context. In other words, right. just kind of out in the world somewhere, almost seemingly random, but yeah. just some reminder. Some A headline. Well, yeah. well, also when the VW Beetle came back... Uh, they did contests of giving away a beetle, and they had a screaming crowd in the background making a song right. of beetle sure. contact. Or, or on a, a current events headline when it's been a hard day's night for this soccer team, you know? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Where they do something like that, it, that evokes the Beatles. Yeah. Right. Yeah. right. So, and that's going to continue forever. Oh, absolutely. Yes, it will. Absolutely. Now, speaking yeah. of artifacts... Uh, now let's talk about... <laughs> except for the Tom Frangione photo, which Tom gives out when he meets people, <laughs> all these photos are fantastic. It, it really captures the look of what people look like. And people look different in 1964, just the way they dress, the way there was a certain look in their eye where you see kids today following you know, you know, one direction or something. There's a different look because the kids seem to be a little more... What's the word? Knowledgeable of maybe what's going on. There's Life. more innocence. Exactly. In there was an photos. innocence in those photos that Candy has in the book. As opposed to now, I think the kids that are of the age that those first generation Beatle fans were, I think there's far less innocence, if that's a way to yeah. put it almost into the negative, than there were in, in the time of, of the photos that, that are in Candy's book. And it's very refreshing to see that. that. Yeah, and it reminded me of... Um, Alan Cozen's book, the e-book he put out, yeah. he has a picture from the New York Times of uh, all these girls, I guess, in front of the plaza. Yeah. I think it's the plaza. Yeah. And just the look. It's not a recreation. It's it's the real thing. And that's what I love about these these photos. You got a picture of them, uh, fans, with a homemade sign on pieces of paper taped together in front of a hard day's night. And uh, even this color picture in the, in the first batch of the pictures, it looks like it was taken from, remember the had the white border on it. It looks like you cut the border out, but it's a great picture. The kid's holding the Meet the Beatles album, and it looks like they might be all listening. There's like eight kids there. Going back to all those people, did you find that when you're interviewing and talking to these first-generation fans about the book, that it is always that feeling of going back to, like, quote, a simpler time, a more innocent time? Is that something that the first-gen fans hold fast to? I don't know that I heard it heard that particularly that much because, you know, when I was doing the interviews, I was sort of getting their story, their kind of Beatle chronology. And so, you know, what happened over those six years and because of them to a large extent, things changed very sure. quickly. And I mean, really what you're getting at is almost like a referendum on the 60s in a sense. Um, yes, it was a simpler time for sure. But I mean, there is nostalgia for that time. Certainly kids today who, you know, I mean, my God, you listen to the music or watch videos, it's basically soft porn. Yeah, Beatles, know, Beatles weren't twerking. There was no Beatle twerking. Right, right. Yeah. But they did. It's funny because, you know, you talk about the crowd scenes outside, you know, waiting to get in to see a hard day's night or whatever. But shortly after that, it changed very quickly, the style, the fashion. In a sense, you know, it was kind of a, you know, there's two sides to the coin. I mean, there was a lot of constraint and conformity at that time, you know, in the 60s. And the um, attitude and the uh, spirit of freedom that the Beatles unleashed really had a lot to do with throwing a lot of that off. You know, I mean, it, you know, it, it's sort of the march of history. There's good and there's bad, you know. I mean, the conservatives today, the Republicans are 
Tea Party type, whatever. I don't want to get too, too political. But when people say, I want my country back, really what they're talking about is a what I call a pre-Beatles America. Right. You know, right. where, yes, it was nice that you could play outside and you got called in for dinner. and You, you know, in other words, that kind of freedom for kids to roam and just blah, blah, blah. But it was also, you know, for women and minorities and Young people is not such a great time in many ways. So it's a mixed bag, really. That's really very well put. So in other words, it does kind of turn around some of the things that we often do here when people make reference to the young Beatles of the early 60s as reflecting such a, quote, happier, simpler time. In a way, it's true. I mean, you, you look back and take the changes that the Beatles brought about in context in the book. And yeah. Sure, as you're saying now, it was a simpler time, but it also was a time where there was less freedom, there was less ability to express oneself, and the Beatles were the harbingers of that change in so many, many yeah, ways. I mean, one of the things I say sort of flippantly, but it's sort of true, I mean, I think we can thank the Beatles for Casual Friday, ultimately, you yeah. know, if you trace it back. Yeah. But we can also perhaps thank them for today's kind of off-porn video. So, you know, it, it, it's a mixed bag. Well, know? are you talking about two virgins? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, they were, you know, yeah, I mean, it, it's a different world, for sure, than it was in 64. Well, and I think that depending on who you are and what your position is in society, you know, it, it's a good thing or maybe not such a good thing. Well, but all I... For, for, yeah, go ahead. No, I was going to say, all I know is when I meet Paul, then I'm going to thank him for all the years of wonderful work, and I'm going to bop him in the nose for giving us Miley Cyrus. I'm kidding. Yeah. <laughs> but, but you know what? We, <laughs> we kid around about the twerking, but the Beatles head shake at that point for the women and for the men was their version of twerking, so to speak. Absolutely. It was very flirtatious. Very right. flirtatious. And not only that, but the Beatles were masters at I mean, because, I mean, this gets the whole charisma thing. I mean... Paul especially, and he still does this, lights up a stage with his eyebrows, with his facial expression, and, and George with his furtive glances at the camera. You know, so they, they were both extremely flirtatious, but it was much more subtle than today. But by the way, uh, we should say that Miley Cyrus has covered Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. Right. So we just, right. Uh, just God to, help us. Just to know that's coming out. One thing about the book, you have quotes from different people, but you don't quote their names you put like male born 53 or male born 51 what was the purpose right. about not putting the people's names in the into the quote well you know some people wanted it some people didn't some people were more reluctant about being quoted or having their name attributed with certain things because some of it is a little controversial here and there or the other thing sometimes like people were kind of embarrassed you know i mean i won't mention the person's name but, you know, these misheard lyrics that are so charming now, you know, the misheard lyrics that people heard at age 9 or 10. But they were not embarrassed. So some people wanted their names, some people didn't. So I kind of split the difference by thanking everybody in the front, you know, mentioning their names, but not attributing the quote. You should have mentioned that Bob Dylan thought that I want to hold your hand was I get high, I get high, <laughs> instead of I can't right. hide. Good misheard right. lyric there. You know? the well, I think the idea, too, being, you know, Rob, that there's that freedom to talk about your parents and how 
Uh, you know, some of these folks, their parents may still be alive. And with all due respect to their folks, a lot of the things in Candy's book. No, but a lot of things in Candy's book, they're talking about how my parents reacted to or how. And it, it probably allows if you know you're not getting quoted by name. It does let you feel a little point more. In your life? Yeah, I, I told still, my mom and it's a universality. About all the drinking nights, me and my friends <laughs> sat down with my mom and we said, you know, mom, when, you know, five years ago we used to drink in the woods behind the house, <laughs> and it was all of us, and we would just get drunk, and you didn't know about. And it, it was all the Beatles' fault, damn it. <laughs> no, but right. but to be right. fair to Candy's point in the book, it doesn't matter who said exactly. it. Exactly, there's it, a universality. It, yeah, yes, right. but. I'm glad that she wrote male and female I, yeah. because yes. that is very, that that's a big that point helps. in this book yeah. because Candy, you point out in a know, positive way. Oh yes. But what I like about it is that you do point out that the girls went crazy and screamed, but the boys were also very prominent in their enjoyment of the Beatles. Right. In very gendered ways. In other words, Boys didn't scream, you know, they, they were more likely to be looking on with sort of amusement at the screaming and at the Beatles. But, but you know, we were talking a minute ago about how it was a different world, and parents were very concerned about their kids adhering to the strict gender roles that we lived with at the time and still do to some extent. But um, when boys talked about their parents getting upset if they wanted to hang pictures of the Beatles on the wall because it was just they didn't like. Of course, the hair was a huge gender role violation for boys, and screaming in public is for girls to do that in 1964. I mean, that was unheard of. But the Beatles gave permission. In other words, what they presented was so compelling that you didn't care if you were a boy and hanging pictures of them on your wall because you just were so excited by them. And you know, one of the big gender issues is who became a musician after seeing the Correct. Beatles. Correct. Yeah, I was going to get to that. That was, you know, 99.9, not exclusively, but, but that was a male prerogative that girls in 1964 just really, for the most part, did not have. Everybody went through, well, not everybody, but, you know, the tennis rackets, the rake, playing Beatles and, and all that. But many young men, boys, you know, did start playing guitar. Some girls did, too, but it was more short-lived, in other words. Or even girls, like June Kessler, talked about how she and her friends had a band called the June Bug. But the message that girls got, and this is if you look at the British invasion and, and everything through that period, is that this is not something girls do. You know, yeah. this is a guy thing. I was going to laugh and say, accepting Susanna Hoffs. She well, yes, there were some interesting <laughs> Susanna Hoffs, uh, Chrissy Hines is a sure. wonderful exception. Yep. yep. Uh, the Hart Sisters. Oh, um, yeah. You know, there were some exceptions, but those, if you think about, say, Chrissy Hines is an example, she's a huge deal. I mean, she was inspired just like Roger McGuinn was, you yes. know, and yeah. you can hear it in her guitar playing. Yeah. Um, but there was very few and far between, you know. As, as I say in the book, for, for girls in 1964 and 1965, they could more easily envision themselves dancing in a cage than being a beatle. Uh, interesting. You know, shows that we saw where that was going on. Just to toss one out, Candy, I recently did an event where Liberty DeVito, Billy Joel's drummer, was involved. And he, in his bio, wrote down that I remember watching the Ed Sullivan show, looking around the room and seeing my sister's friends screaming. And I thought to myself, 
wow, I got to learn how to play an instrument so I can look around and see girls screaming for me. And it was a direct... Right, that was... Yeah. Yeah, I mean, they were role models for for boys in a way that they obviously couldn't be for girls. And so boys, especially boys who were past puberty, you know, the reactions if you were before puberty were were not as gendered as afterwards for obvious reasons. But for boys who were interested in girls, they immediately saw that yeah, I'm going to do that and elicit this kind of response from people. Absolutely. You know, who wouldn't want to do that? Sure. <laughs> also, just you're talking about the Sullivan Show, a little Stephen Van Zant said, how many bands got started on February 10th? Right. You know? Right, exactly. Right. Or that morning is when millions of boys started begging their parents to buy me a guitar. And of course, the musical instrument industry benefited hugely right after that. <laughs> Amazing. And on that note, we are going to take a break right now. We are talking with Dr. Candy Leonard, the author of Beatleness, How the Beatles and Their Fans Remade the World. And we will be back right after this. Hi, everyone. Just wanted to let you know that besides Fab Four Free For All, each of the three of us are involved in our own individual projects. Mitch Axelrod's two books, Beetle Tunes, the only book about the cartoon Beatles show, and Little Billy and Baseball Bob can be found through all of your good booksellers online, including Amazon.com, or if you'd like autographed copies, contact Mitch on Facebook. And my buddy Rob Leonard has a great Beatles show that he's been doing for 20 years called Beatles Songs. And it's on every Friday night from 8 p.m. to 11 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And you can listen to it online. It's streaming at www.ncc.edu slash WHPC. And also look for it on TuneIn.com. And Tony Truquardo is the host of 4F, free format for free, on WCWP 88.1 on Long Island. He's on every Monday from 7 p.m. to 9 p.m. Eastern Time. And also at www.wcwp.org. Also available on TuneIn.com. And we are back on Fab Four Free For All, talking with Dr. Candy Leonard about her really intriguing book. And I'm not going to say great or anything. It's a really good book. Uh, it's, it's a great book, but I want you to get it and judge for yourself because it's a definitely a different the angle. Uh, the, the angle, angle is definitely different, and yeah. it is called Beatleness, How the Beatles and Their Fans Remade the World. You know, there's a, a movie that was done in 1978. You, damn it, you stole my... Uh, I'm sorry. Damn it. Called I Want to Hold Your Hand, and mm-hmm. it really shows a little bit about, you know, what we're talking about here. I'm sure you've seen that movie, correct? Yeah, I have with Eddie Deason. Yeah, Eddie Deason, a really, a really good guy, a Facebook friend, and, and a really genuine person, really likable guy. But that movie... When I saw it in 1978, that actually took me to to my feelings about where my Beatleness was at that point. I didn't I didn't call it Beatleness until now, but now that's going to be mine now because of the book. So thank you. But what did you think of that movie in terms of? Did anybody mention that movie in your book? Possibly. I, well, I think Eddie probably mentioned. I did interview him. Yeah, I mean, I think that Robert Zemeckis, who made that film, is a huge Beatles fan, and like Ron Howard's now working on a documentary. I think that, again, I mean, these are people who had that experience, and because it was something so monumental, 
in their lives, and that's the field they're in. They wanted to capture it. But yeah, I, w- I Want to Hold Your Hand is a great movie. I, I saw it years ago. I haven't watched it recently. But um, yeah, it, it does capture sure, the naminess, you know, the freedom, that, that feeling of the, what I spoke about in the book is they created opportunities for escapades, you know, that you would go to try to sneak in a hotel. You would go try to find a back door somewhere. You know, for the vehicle to come to your town and you... You and your friends get together and go in to these big fancy hotels that no, none of us had stepped foot in before and to like try to meet the deals. It was an exciting, wonderful thing to do. And so, yeah, I think it's captured very well in that. Now, th- what I love about the book also is, is the honesty, as we've talked about, the people you interviewed and yourself, because we've discussed how the Beatles are so great and everything. But, you know, as the Beatles changed, the fans didn't always share the admiration for their change and it's very you know it's a blunt honesty in the book which is great they did change allegiances why don't you talk a little bit about that well the the big change of allegiance of course was to the monkeys and this began in as you know nice coincidence that revolver which is where this kind of some defection of the lower fans started, you know, like, well, I don't know, this is smart, I've a little too much for me, love you too, too much for me, whatever. And I'll leave that to my older brothers and sisters. And, and then, you know, a month after Revolver comes out, the Monkeys TV show starts. And that was what I call the Beatle break. You know, that's where it started. And of course, after the release of Strawberry Fields and Kenny Lane, it, and people got a what they looked like, there was another wave of, you know, more fans defected. And not only the younger ones, I mean, it was a lot of it was younger things, but not only the younger ones. It just became a little too much. They weren't ready for it. They never rejected it outright somewhere. They would say things like, I'm not ready for this. Or, you know, maybe people in California and New York understand that I don't, I'm not sophisticated enough. Or, you know, there was, it, there was never this outright rejection. But the monkeys kind of being there to you know, entertain and, and engage those fans who, who kind of put the Beatles on a back burner for a minute. It's interesting because the Beatles nest, you know, I don't think message, but, you know, as they became more um, experimental, more sophisticated, and more countercultural, the monkeys were there with the innocence and frivolity and cuteness of the early Beatles. But yet they continued the countercultural message in their TV show and certainly in their records. I mean, you take a song like Pleasant Valley Sunday, very much filled with teenage angst and social commentary and and things. So one of the metaphors I used to talk about the experience of growing up with the Beatles or being on this journey or this odyssey is that it was like an alternative curriculum in a sense that was sort of parallel to what we were learning in school or, or anywhere else. And so... If, so as the curriculum started to include countercultural elements or employing fans to think for yourself, question reality, have opinions, you know, all this that they, which we started hearing in that music at that time, the monkeys were kind of about the same thing. So they continued the countercultural message, even though they were packaged like the early Beatles. I hate to sound cliche here, but did the older generation contribute to some of the fans defecting because, you know, when we saw the Beatle promo films on American Bandstand, Dick Clark actually comes out and says, you know, well, yeah. it's like their grandfather. And, and, and I sort of... Well, almost, he doesn't say that. One of the oh, right. The, the, the kids say that. Yeah. But he doesn't 
do anything to dissuade them from feeling like that. I mean, obviously they they felt like that, but but that show I think had a lot to do with you know when you watch it now you say. Darn you, Dick I always Dick thought Clark part would... of it was Dick Clark never was part of the Beatle bandwagon. That's what well, I part think, of it. Well, I think there's another thing going on. I, mean, I think Dick Clark was not stupid, but he was pretty a pretty straight guy. And, I, you know, like much of the music industry, I mean, look at the, if you look at the history of the Grammys during the Beatle period, it's pretty clear that the music industry was pretty threatened by them, didn't quite know what to make of them all along. And so... You know, Dick Clark in that footage when he's asking those young people how they thought about the Beatles' new work and all that, he was kind of noncommittal, I would right. say, yeah. as I recall the clip. Yep. Um, but what's interesting about that is that a lot of young fans, you know, they look like my grandfather, they don't like it. But older fans who are already in college actually liked it because, especially fans who are getting involved in politics and the youth movement, because they saw that facial hair as symbolic of the Beatles support for their protesting the war, wanting more rights on campus, you know, whatever, this sort of blowing off of these constraints that were still lingering at that time. So older fans were thrilled because they saw the Beatles as allies in their struggle for, you know, more youth empowerment. It's interesting, too, uh, Candy, because, you know, for instance, my sister was 14 in 67, 68, and I remember that talking to her years later about sort of defecting away. Now, my sister was a fan of music of the 50s, Dion, Four Seasons, et cetera, you know, late right. 50s, early 60s, Tommy Rowe, et cetera. But for her, I think it partly was the packaging. It was the, uh, the mustaches and whatnot. And I found it funny that she sort of jumped away from the Beatles. But I think a lot of it was, was also the Sonics. I think that there were certain ears that maybe weren't ready for just the the musical change oh, yeah. of of Tomorrow Never Knows. Like, she jumped off of Beatles, but ended up, I mean, there was a slight subversiveness even in, you know, The Beat Goes On by Sonny and Cher, and, you know, oh, yeah. a, and For What It's Worth by Buffalo Springfield and things like that, obviously right. directly subversive, but those images weren't as prevalent. She didn't know what Buffalo Springfield looked like. She knew she liked For What It's Worth and, like, the meaning in the song, but the Beatles were so out in front. And it's funny because one of her friends then later said to me, to some degree, I wish the Beatles hadn't grown their hair long because they could have snuck the messages in better for the older generation if the older generation didn't run away from the mustaches and the beards, which I thought was interesting. He was kind of like, you know, had they stayed with short hair, they could have stayed, said what they wanted to say. And I said, yeah, but now you wouldn't have a beard and long hair, which this guy that was, you know, talking to me said, so I said, there's a little bit of a juxtaposition there. But it's right. interesting. Well, they were always kind of sneaking. I mean, there's sort of a Trojan horse in a way. In fact, there's a yep. wonderful article that I think, you know, people interested in this should, should go back and take a look at, where Lennon is interviewed in Look Magazine in, I think it was December of 66. And he basically says, I mean, I'm paraphrasing, I'm not quoting directly now, but the point was that, we had to kind of look clean and innocent in order to make it. And I think he said we were false. It's not who we really were. And then they started to, uh, you know, once they made it, they were able to be more expressive of not only their personal style, but also their politics and, and their worldviews and things. But that stuff started happening really early on. I think the song Nowhere Man was actually a very uh, early uh, indicator 
of where this is going to go as yeah. far as their influence on a generation. Candy, one of the things I love, Chapter 4's title is called The Embodiment of Cool, December 65 to January 67. And if you think about what the Beatles went through from Rubber Soul to Revolver, which is only seven months. I know, it's, it's mind-boggling, it's isn't an, it? It's an incredible two back-to-back albums of any band, any time, and even within the Beatles. It's just an incredible jump. And it's not a jump in style, it's, it's in substance. It's, it's, oh, absolutely. And, yeah. I, and I, I really thought that was a, a great title because the back of the collection of Beatles oldies, they have those, that picture in Japan and also the back of Revolver, which is kind of a similar picture. Both pictures just capture the Beatles in this coolness. Like, we're right. doing this great music and we're cool. Yeah, the, as I, you know, I was saying before how joy was the, is the word that people use over and over again. Cool is the word I heard second most often. Cool, cool, cool. It was, and, and not only teenagers. I mean, boys eight, nine, ten years old wanted to grow their hair long because it was cool. You know, um, a woman I interviewed, she remembers hearing she was a writer when she was ten, and she said, made her realize that even though the song was meant sort of cynically, but yeah, you know, she interpreted it as a, in her ten-year-old head, and she said it made me realize that cool people write. That writing is a thing that people do as a profession and cool people write. And I asked her, well, what does cool mean? And she described cutting edge, vivid, proud, audacious. I forget the word, you know, what do you think that meant when you... And so this here's a 10-year-old who is looking at the Beatles thinking they're cool. And the most... And being cool is a great thing. Who didn't want to be cool? It was so important, even at age 10. So, yeah, actually, the embodiment of cool, I think, was a fan used that phrase, the embodiment of cool. You know, and they were. You, they oh, were. yeah. I agree. You know, Candy, uh, going back a little bit, because I want to bring up another point, but I want to relay a story to you, which I, I will never, ever forget. And I, I just told my wife the other day, I was looking at my picture sleeve for Let It Be, and I want to talk about the breakup in a, in a moment, but the, the actual 45 picture sleeve, at that point, you know, 1970, I was eight years old, but totally the embodiment of a Beatle fan. And my grandmother had really defected from the Beatles. When I say my grandmother defected, she wasn't screaming, but she was a fan because of me, because I had mm-hmm. played the Beatles and we lived in the same house. So, But she defected when they grew their mustaches. She just didn't like that, which is fine. Because mm-hmm. they looked like hippies. Of course. And, and actually, she said that. Well, Sinatra never had a mustache. Come on. Oh, stop it. But she wasn't a fan of that. But anyway... I remember we played Let It Be on the big RCA, you know, stereo system, which was a cabinet and a house in itself. And mm-hmm. she she saw the picture sleeve, saw them with their long hair and their mustaches, still didn't like it automatically. We put it on and I could see her shut her eyes and enjoy it to the thousand percent. OK, she mm-hmm. loved it. At the end, it clicked off. And I said, Grandma. What'd you think? She went, it's all right. You know, she didn't want to admit that she... Well, yeah, yeah. It was such a weirdness. A lot a of weirdness. parents didn't want to admit it. And in some cases, well, there was this whole thing. I talked about the book with fathers. You know, the difference between mothers and fathers. Fathers were much more resistant. In fact, there were fans who the mothers liked the Beatles but weren't allowed to play the records when dad was home. And, even, you know, grandparents also. You know, there was some parents, some adults were kind of reluctant to admit it. Um, yeah. But yeah, absolutely. But, but you know, speaking of the breakup, because 
I mean, the book, I, I have to tell you, you know, it's almost 300 pages of just so many great memories, but the, the very poignant lines that I took from the breakup, you know, you mentioned people saying it was like losing a family member or losing the comforting presence. Yeah. So, you know, let, let's discuss that because they're really, I can't think of anything that socially hit people as hard. No, there's no equivalent. Uh, of really. the people's but that's social the thing. I'm sorry, go ahead. I no, I was going to say, that I, I just don't remember anything hitting at least my world as much as, well, John Lennon being killed, but the Beatle breakup, even to an eight-year-old, I was just devastated. So those people that had those phrases like losing the comforting presence, losing a family member, I relate, but, you know, how did they relay that to you? Well, you know, if you think about it, you know, I mean, one of the reasons I wanted to write the book was because I have found myself in conversations so many times over the years where people talk about, you know, the experience of growing up with the Beatles as how extraordinary it was. And I wanted to document that. But part of the thing that made it so extraordinary is that they were this constant presence in our lives for six years. And you know, you turn on TV now, we, you know, okay, we see a lot of Justin Bieber, we see a lot of Miley Cyrus, Taylor Swift, whatever. But, you know, there had never been wall-to-wall coverage of anything before the Beatles. From the time they stepped off the plane till the time that they broke up, they were just in the news constantly. And, of course, we had become newspaper readers and magazine readers because we were always searching for little tidbits about them. But they were this constant, constant presence. And it was a presence that was joyful, fun, an opportunity to connect with your friends and your and the big kids. You know, if you like the Beatles, the big kids, whether it was your siblings or the kids down the street or your babysitter, they'd let you hang out with them. So they, they everything that they brought to fans during those six years was fun, engaging, intellectually stimulating, emotionally stimulating, and of course, towards the end, increasingly spiritually stimulating. So suddenly, this is gone. This isn't going to happen anymore. It was devastating. Yeah, you, it really makes perfect sense to me that people responded that way. And even now, years later, I mean, the crux of why first-generation fans are still so, I don't want to use the word obsessed, but why they have this place in their heart, soul, whatever, for the Beatles that's so special and profound is because of that six-year presence in their lives. And you say, someone had told you, they were always, quote, something to hold on to. Yeah, which I yeah. think is very poignant. You know, for me, I always say that the Beatles helped me through a lot of bad times, but created many good times. Um, mm-hmm. That's my own feeling. But yeah. what, one thing that you, you mentioned toward the end is that you heard a lot is, I grew up with them. Yeah. And I think that's really very profound. So I would like you to discuss that a little bit. Yeah, well... I grew up with them. It, it kind of, it sort of has three different meanings. In other words, they were there when you were growing up. You know, you grew up during those years. The other meaning is that you grew up with them, in a sense, because fans, you know, even if you were seven years old when they came, you know, by the time it was over, you were 13 or 14. They were 22, but then they were in their late 20s. So there was this sense of... Not quite siblings, not quite brothers, not quite uncles, not quite friends, but they were these guys in your life. And and so you grew up and you watched them grow up, too. So you kind of grew up alongside them, in a sense. And then there's the other meaning of grew up together, you know, that they grew up with them, which is that they made fans grow up, not made, but as a result of their 
presence and the music and all the intellectual fodder and, and crazy images and just all the, the dazzle, the spectacle that they brought to us for six years made us grow up a little faster. Yeah. You know, it, it made us grow up in a way that we wouldn't have. It changed the course of our growing up because people thought about things in a new way or, or discovered uh, different things they wanted to learn about. I mean, people talk about entering graphic design because of just the love of the album covers or music, of course, or just, you know, people kind of becoming, uh, you know, that, that new way of seeing the world that they inspired. And so, yeah, this idea grew up with them and we knew them and we knew them when. And so... You know, so by the time you get to, like, that horrible promo film for uh, Hello, Goodbye, where there's all this self-referencing, their earlier films, which they do a lot. I mean, they started doing that pretty early on. But fans like that because it was like they know, in other words, they're reminding us that we knew them when. You know, we knew them before they, when they still looked sort of innocent, you know, well, just but, like they was before they was. <laughs> one of the things I was going to say about the breakup is, I think one of the reasons people still have a little thought process that's different than others is that we always saw them together for the most part, and they didn't break up because they stopped selling records like other bands. They broke up because they couldn't work with each other. Well, they grew up. Business-wise. But they it was all the music-wise. Yeah. Yeah. They outgrew the container you know, that the, they were in. Most bands just end. You know. But it was also the symbol, too, of, of a loss of that symbol of unity in someone's life, yes. too. I mean, there's a really great bit where Paul's talking about the impending breakup during the Let It Be sessions. And he's talking to Michael Lindsay Hogg about a possible plan for how to announce the end of the Beatles. Uh-huh. And and Michael Lindsay Hogg is thinking of it as a director and says, wow, that's nice. That's nice. And Linda just erupts. Linda says, no, no, that's not nice. No, no, the end <laughs> of the Beatles is not nice. And she right. goes off about how you guys are, are message carriers. You you guys are, are, you know, and she's like really getting worked up like a fan. Right. Well, and she it's, was well, she was a fan. She was a fan. And it's really very telling. And, and you, you kind of see Paul kind of recoil like, whoa, what did I open there? And mm. it's brilliant to see, you know, to hear this evidence of, of a fan reacting to Paul saying, oh, well, maybe we're over, you know, it, and right. that loss right. is just tremendous to think about, you know? It was a tremendous loss to people, and, and also the timing of it, you know, it was after Kent State had happened, well, the break of technically before, but that whole spring of 1970, you know, the war was escalating, and, and again, by that time, they were our Beatles, you know, and they were on our side with all of this, and well, they were yeah. watching all this along with us. Well, also, then, also, Let It Be hadn't come out yet. Right. So people right. thought of Abbey Road. Out in May, you know, Let It Be comes out two weeks after Kent State. So you're sitting in the movie theater and watching this and you know that they're over. And of course, when you see that movie, I mean, this sort of gets back to the whole question about Yoko, which I don't know if you wanted to get into. But, you know, I talked in the book about Yoko. I think I handled that. I was very careful because I know there's still a lot of feeling about it because she's associated with the breakup. In fact, some cases obviously playing, but... Well, the right or wrong, she's associated with them. Yeah, with it. Right, but again, you can, you know, in the book, I, I take the fans' perspective without 45 years of commentary and discussion. In other words, we were watching them with virgin eyes. We saw what we saw. Right. So we're sitting there watching Let It Be, and we see this 
horrible tension between them. These are not the four guys who love each other with the chemistry and all this. There's clearly tension. And the most obvious thing in the film is, is the presence of Yoko. So again, it would be understandable that fans would associate her with all that tension and stuff. But it was very devastating when they broke up. Of course, there was a lot of new music to listen to. McCartney had just come out, so that was very much appreciated by fans. It's a great record, I think. I think it's still a great record. But people were very upset, you know, and it was a new decade, you know, and so there was this sense of something being over. Yeah. Really big being over. You know, we've we've only got a few minutes left, but I I do want to bring up one thing in the book that I think will hopefully tie nicely to the rap. And it's not self-serving, believe me, because I wrote Beatle Tunes, but you did mention the animated mop tops and how that brought the Beatleness to a lot of young people. And it, it's only, you know, a page and a half in your book, but I think it's very poignant because the cartoons have not been released ever on VHS or DVD. And my big thing in my ever ongoing quest to have the Beatle cartoons released is that I think it would bring the, I'm going to use your noun, Beatleness, to a new generation of fans because I think the innocence of the Beatles being mop tops, the music, whether it's, you know, it stopped at Strawberry Fields, but it didn't matter. How do you feel, maybe, do you feel that the cartoons would help bring that Beatleness to a new generation? Well, yes, it would. But, uh, you know, I'm, as I kind of implied in the book, I'm not a huge fan of them for a number right. of reasons, particularly in their historical context. Well, right. Because I think they were a little bit exploitative. But, yeah, I mean, I guess, sure, why not release them? Yeah, I think it would bring Beatleness to young fans. But, you know, Yellow Submarine, I know like, I have a five-year-old grandson who just loves Yellow Submarine, and... You know, Yellow Submarine is sort of the gateway drug to Beatles for, for young kids. <laughs> well um, put. I, I, like yeah. I like that. <laughs> that but that's also you been know, released so many times yeah. that it's almost being shoved down our throat as the the way for young fans to d- but it know works. the Beatles. I know but it, it works. works. It's, you know, it works. Yeah. But I think it has more. I mean, I don't know. I don't want, I don't want to bash the uh, cartoon. No, no, no. Much, and that's not I, the I, purpose of bringing it up. Yeah. Believe me. I, had, I, I think it has more diversity, Mitch. I I think Yellow Submarine gives more in it in a concentrated dose. It's yeah. more artful, I think, than yeah. the cartoons. Yeah. I don't yeah. know. I mean, I have mixed feelings about the cartoons. I think they're funny. I mean, to watch. Would I rather see the cartoons released than not? Sure. Absolutely. You know, well, first more, of all. More Beatleness in the world. Correct. <laughs> Anything being released brings Beatleness. <laughs> By the way, But I'll tell you what, I don't once. think we're ever. I don't think we're going to see Let It Be released. I personally agree I, with you. I, but. I think that will be released after. Paul and Ringo die. Well, <laughs> right. I don't think they want it out there for the reasons I was just saying. Right. Because they want to be remembered as... Well, what fans loved so much was looking at their relationship, the love between these guys. And we didn't get into the whole new model of masculinity thing, but that was part of it. In other words, this friendship between these men was very compelling, especially for, for boys and, and men. And so that was just gone. In and, and so I think that there's a darkness to that film. And I, I agree. I don't think we're going to see it out, if ever, for many, many years. Now, first of all, Mitch, I'm glad you brought up the cartoons because I was waiting the entire show for you. Stop. I was, I was going. I had I it. Wasn't doing it five questions ago. I no, no. I wanted you to bring it up because you you wrote a book about it. You know yes, about it. I was going to ask a question, but I said I'm going to let Mitch do it. I'm going to let. Well, Mitch I only said that so. because the innocence of the cartoons. Oh, the to, a, to a little kid, yeah. you know, that's what I meant. I, I didn't mean you know that they were technically. Really it's good. also part of what 
was presented in that time of the Beatles. And for many people, you know, it wasn't like you have an internet where uh, there's websites all over the place. Weekly, you saw the Beatles. And, and Candy State yeah, stuff that so, a lot of people were introduced to the Beatles every week. Yeah. So right. yeah, it was, was like your, your big sister or brother loved the Beatles, you know, and then you, right. you could get into it too by watching these cartoons. So it rolled in the next wave of fans. Right. Candy, we're talking about the Beatles. Are there any other groups from that time? Maybe it doesn't cover, you know, up until 70, but is there any other group that had a. Jerry and the Pacemaker Ness, or Dave Clark Five Ness, or Rolling Stone Ness. No. Well, I I mean, the Stones had a very strong persona, strong essence in the way that the Beatles did, but there's no Ness about the Stones, really. I mean, no. The Stoners. (laughs) (laughs) There's a pervasiveness about the Beatles and their influence and their essence that just demanded a new word, I think. I think the closest you might come, Rob, is not something that really stayed. I think the closest you came to any other band having any kind of hold never really affected us in the U.S. And it may be looking at like the who and and the faces as being part of the mod movement. But they didn't make it happen. They didn't incite it. They didn't push the change. They were just part part of it. it, You know, I don't think there's any other band that even remotely could come close. I don't think. People would, you know, certainly Dylan, much that can be said about yeah. Dylan in right. this regard. And in fact, there's a book that just came out called Dylanology, which is kind of interesting. So everything about the whole phenomenon, from the music to the reaction to the enduringness of it, is just, it's unique. You know? In your opinion, in the future, can there ever be another group or, or movement or anything that can, that can incite what the Beatles did? to a generation? I don't think so, no. It won't, because the, you know, when the Beatles were on Ed Sullivan, there were two other channels you could have been watching instead of that. Okay, so now, I mean, the entertainment industry is so fragmented. The music industry is very different. The demographics don't support that happening again like they did then because it's a huge baby boomer generation. It was a different time, you know. One of the ways I describe it is it's like we watched this comet move across the sky very, very slowly for six years, and it was so dazzling, we couldn't look away. And then it kind of ended, you know. And so I don't think it can happen again like that. I I don't see it. In a way, I hope I'm wrong, because I think that especially given the state of the world right now, and climate issues and things like we really do need somebody to come along and like tell us to get our act together and, and think about what we're doing in the way that they did. <laughs> but yeah. That's a little off topic, but um, no, I, I don't see it happening again. Not in that way. No, no. Well, well the, the book is called Beatleness, How the Beatles and Their Fans Remade the World by Dr. Candy Leonard. We have not covered so much of it, which is good because that makes people want to go out and buy it. Yeah. And, and I hope please, so. <laughs> I hope so too. And I really want to stress to the fans that even though we've talked a lot about first generation here, it does not alienate no, the second, third, fourth, and fifth generation fans because I think it gives such a, a good feeling of, and an essence of what first generation fans felt. And I think there are a lot of other generations that really want to feel that, want to understand what the first generation felt. And I think this book conveys that beautifully. Tell people where they can get the book and how to get the book. Well, it's on Amazon. That's probably the easiest way. It's, also, it's, an e- it's hardcover. It's also an e-book and an audio book. just came out last week as an audio book. 
So Amazon, uh, BarnesandNoble.com, it's at, uh, I'm getting reports from around the country. People are seeing it at their local Barnes & Noble. The few brick-and-mortar stores that are remaining do have yeah. it. You can order it from your favorite bookstore, you know, a local indie bookstore. So it's available anywhere. I mean, obviously, Amazon's the easiest way to buy books these days. So, Is there a website? Yes. Oh, thank you for reminding me. Beetlenest.com, where there's some uh, excerpts, uh, Beetlenest blog, you know, some sort of musings on things related to the book in the blog. Um, and please feel free to comment. And so, yeah, Beetlenest.com is sort of a good kind of overview introduction to the book. There's some additional reviews up there, some interviews and video of me talking about it. Great. Um, uh, well, we really do appreciate it. It's, it's a great gift for anyone who loves the Beatles. That's what I should say. Absolutely. No, I mean, it, it'll yeah. bring Beatle, it, it'll carry on the Beatleness. It'll, the book itself will bring Beatleness to people. Uh, so we really do appreciate your time. This has been a really interesting episode. Well, so, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate the oh, opportunity. Oh, please, again, our pleasure. We really enjoyed this. So for Fab Four Free For All, uh, I have been your moderator, Mitch Axelrod, and joining me has been... Rob Leonard. And... Tony Chiguardo. And Dr. Candy Leonard. Again, the book is called Beatleness, How the Beatles and Their Fans Remade the World. Uh, go buy the book. We recommend it. And uh, we will see you all soon. Fab Four Free For All was edited and produced by Tony Chiguardo at Word of Mouth Studios in Westbury, New York. The opening and closing theme is My Dolly by the band The Badge, featuring longtime listener Jeff Slate, available on its debut album Digital Retro and recent Best Of compilation, as well as from the Fab Four Free For All website. Thanks for listening to Fab Four Free For All. Hey, Candy, this is uh, your yeah. cousin Rob Leonard. How you doing? Um, <laughs> for those who don't know, we're not related, but uh, we do find out that Candy is from Queens. And my my father grew up in Queens, but we're not related. Listen, we're all related because of the Beatles. So well, that's, that's true. true. That's exactly right. <laughs> we all say we're Beatles, Beatles cousins. Yeah. yeah. Thank you, thank you, cousin cousin Candy. Like uh, cousin Brucey, right? I, exactly. I was about to say that. <laughs> One thing I, I truly love about the book is the pictures. Um, um, hang on, Rob. I'm sorry, Ken. I want to get to the third definition before we well, start talking. Well, screw the third definition. No, oh, yeah. no, no, no. Okay. No, no, we need to, Rob. What? We don't have to do it in order. Yes, we are. <laughs> no, we don't. I asked her for the... Th sorry, Candy. We're going to edit. I've got to do the third okay, definition. I'll, I'll do it quickly. No, we have to. It's back in.